It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and recommend it to a friend, Clyde of Ventress. Today, I have a conversation with Chris Bedford, one of my great friends uh, who I've interviewed multiple times before, uh, who is currently the executive editor at the Common Sense Society. Uh, he is uh, an astute analyst of American politics. And so we talked about a number of different things, mostly focused on the 2024 elections and the uh, Joe Biden skepticism that is emerging within the Democratic Party, as well as a number of different challenges faced by Republicans in the U.S. Congress. Chris Bedford coming up next. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Chris Bedford, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Great to be here. So I want to connect two things that might sound conspiratorial. There are no conspiracies anymore. Late at night a Californian neoliberal governor with very slick hair who has been talked about quite frequently as a potential presidential uh, fallback should Joe Biden not be able to run, uh, does something extraordinary in vetoing a bill requiring uh, parents to affirm the identity of their transgender child, which is, by the way, from my perspective, a thing that does not exist. Connect that to a Washington Post ABC poll, which shows Donald Trump trouncing Joe Biden in the general election, including uh, underlying numbers that indicate that Bidenomics are extremely unpopular. Uh, 30% approve of Biden's performance on the economy. And 74% of uh, those polled believe he's too old for a second term. Uh, his approval rating, by the way, on immigration is 23%. Are we witnessing a kind of last gasp attempt by the neoliberal elite on the left to push Biden aside before it's too late? I think that it's kind of it's a little bit more wishful thinking and and and, and pushing around the trigger, it seems like. I mean, Newsom, everyone points to Newsom as a potential just as heir apparent to to Joe Biden. And he, he's got to at some point recognize that in order to actually run nationally, he's got to he, he can't simply run on California's record. California's record is so easily attacked and pulled apart. It's going to be difficult for him in general. And he also at least has had the the brains to realize that pulling a Ted Kennedy or pulling a Ronald Reagan and, and, and primary in a city. Reagan versus Ford, you mean? Yes. Yes. Reagan versus Ford and Ted Kennedy versus Carter. Primary in a sitting member of your own party would be disastrous. And it might make you a hero amongst some of the activist class. And in Reagan's case, it ended up paying off later. But it makes you a lot of enemies. And it basically dooms your candidate uh, 
to lost who were lost when, they, when when the American people say even their own party do, does not does not want this guy in charge. And you know, like you said, the Washington Post just just a week or two ago had the David Ignatius column calling this out. You know, the sorts of things that you and I saw firsthand when Joe Biden was running in the Democratic primary. Now they're starting to say, maybe this is a problem. Maybe maybe he's not our guy. I, I still think it's a little bit of wishful thinking. I, unless, unless Joe Biden were to pass, pass away or something, him, he doesn't want to step aside. He's extremely ambitious. He wants to be a two-term president. Knocking him out or forcing him to resign, I think, would show great weakness. It's kind of like they did this with Andrew Cuomo when they wished that he had been the nominee and when they in, in 2020 in the last round at the last minute, they probably dodged that bullet in the end. But there's this this jitters like a groom on his wedding day or something amongst Democrats saying, am I making the right choice? Is, is this the right choice? Well, the choice has kind of been made. The caterer has been paid. All the guests are there. I don't see them getting out of it, uh, barring some kind of mortality event. Well, I mean, that's the thing that I've been hearing from. And in fact, I asked a Democrat uh, about this. A Democratic congressman uh, just last week uh, who confided to me in uh, a, a, a not something that, you know, I assigned his name to. But he basically said, look, he's been working to get to this point for 36 years. He's not going to let go. Uh, and so I think that really that the I- idea has set in among most serious people in Washington that absent a health event, meaning Joe falls, breaks his hip, he, it's, it's impossible for, you know, he has to go in a wheelchair or something like that, that, you know, this is what they are stuck with. But I do think that there is kind of a donor class fascination on the Democrat side. You know, you could compare it to like the donor class uh, uh, GOP fascination with the idea of like Glenn Youngkin sweeping in uh, to, to save their bacon. Uh, it, it just, it seems to be something that they're hoping for, but, the difference is that there are underlying numbers that do show that Joe is a much weaker candidate this time around than he was in 2020, that basically people have seen his act and soured on it. Does that give them any kind of ability to affect a change? And just given the fact that we saw, we witnessed, we were there at the scene of the crime in South Carolina, where they got all of these other candidates out in order to affirm Joe and to prevent the potential Bernie Sanders nomination that seemed to be an actual possibility for about two weeks. Uh, Does the Democratic Party have any kind of power to prevent that from happening and to assert a new candidate? I mean, it, it seems like it's the kind of power that exists in green room conversations more than it exists in actual reality. I mean, the Democratic Party has a lot of power. And you, you, for as much as the, the, the Donald Trump voter, uh, the Republican donors can feel really sorry for themselves that they're having to deal with Donald Trump again. They never chose him. The Democratic donors did choose Joe Biden. This was just like you said, was their plan. Biden was cruising to defeat in South Carolina. That that seemed like it was going to be his last gasp, and it turned out to be it was turned around by allies and Democratic uh, Party. And obviously, the DNC had been pushing hard for this the entire time. They wanted to stop Bernie Sanders, just like they did the first time he ran. Uh, and Democrats they they have been able to wield that power, but like you said, never never against an incumbent president like Joe Biden. And Joe Biden can still be useful. I mean, I think that now that they've seen it, now that voters have seen it, and all the defense that they've been able to run for him, 
hasn't been able to actually block voters from feeling the pain at the pump and feeling pain at the grocery store and and looking on television and and feeling and, and seeing the immigration crisis and and feeling that the country's going in the wrong direction, which is by the way, a much better indicator of somebody, a sitting president losing re-election as if a lot of people think the country is going in the wrong direction as it is now. But the media and his friends and politics have been able to hide that reality from us for long enough. But it's it's getting through. He's incredibly unpopular. You had this that Washington Post uh, ABC poll that came out that showed a 10-point difference, Trump winning by 10 points. I don't, I don't think that's actually true. But he's going to hold on. I mean, this is just... It's something he's wanted his entire life. And this kind of what we're seeing right now, these machinations remind me a little bit of 2016 when you could walk into the green room at Fox and hear people confidently predicting about how they were going to have a rule change or they were going to do this at the convention and Trump won't be the nominee. Ted Cruz you mean, out you there. Mean the, last, the last interview I ever did with David Frum where he said that there was a uh, indictment that was going to come down against Donald Trump Jr. over taxi medallions in new york that was going to change the whole dynamic <laughs> and he, and he, I still now they actually that. tried the indictment strategy and they can't get out of it and it's not working for them uh it seems to be a little bit of a disaster there also even though these dc insiders really do wish that joe biden wasn't their guy they don't want kamala and at, at the end of the day they are still calling the shots in the biden white house i mean yes. he may be unpopular but they're still in charge He's still their puppet. And and that's exactly. the thing that yeah, and and that's the thing that I think, you know, still sort of makes this difficult for him. It would be it would be different if he had gone off the reservation so much on the things that they wanted. Um I want to read to you uh just a paragraph from uh, a recent edition, this weekend edition of the Free Press, uh Barry Weiss's publication, which featured an interview between Michael Boynihan and, and Franklin Four. Uh, Franklin Four, I just want to put in context for the listeners, uh, is the originator of the Alpha Bank conspiracy theory, one of the most conspiracy theory minded members of the Russiagate coverage. Uh, He has a book out uh, this month called The Last Politician. Uh, Let me just read this paragraph for you. Among the people not yet convinced that Biden needs to be in a nursing home is Atlantic staff writer Frank Four. Four's last uh, Four's new book, The Last Politician, tells the behind the scenes story of Biden's first two years in office. Four says he started as a Biden skeptic. I do not believe that for a moment. The incoming president was, in his estimation, a bloviator who fetishized bipartisanship. Yeah, I mean, there's actually very little proof of that in terms of uh, Biden's career as one of a partisan who pretends to be bipartisan. But he emerges some 400 pages later with a more charitable view of the president. Biden is, quote, the father figure of the West, unquote, someone deeply experienced in foreign policy and racking up policy victories at home. Biden, he writes, is an instructive example of the tedious nobility of the political vocation, unheroic, but honorably human. He will be remembered as the old hack who could. Chris Bedford, would you like to respond to that description of Joe Biden? I feel uncomfortable. I feel like I'm witnessing a private moment right now. It's like uh, <laughs> the most private of acts. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, how Quentin Tarantino, when you're watching his movies, sometimes you can get gross, deeply uncomfortable because you know you're watching, you know, his innermost fantasies. And it's, it's in reality, they're kind of icky, no matter how smart the guy could be. I feel like that. I, it's, it's a little grimy. 
Um, you know, there was this great line in Elizabeth Warren's autobiography, which I had to lash myself through one one year when she was toying with the primary run, where she talks about the first time she met Ted Kennedy, you know, the last line of the Senate. And she said when she left that meeting in his office, after meeting with this noble, honorable politician, she felt like she had been washed clean in the presence of Teddy. And I, and even now, just remembering it, I get oh. a little shiver. <laughs> my, my skin just so gnarly. <laughs> Lots of people may have had to shower after meeting with him, but uh, I think this was different. Look, I, uh, my feeling is on, you know, sort of uh, reading something like that. And by the way, I can't recommend that interview to you all because unfortunately I think it's the worst depiction of, of kind of a polite, like toleration of someone who's just saying ridiculous things, um, which I, I, I just think you should challenge people on, on stuff like that. It, like this is the faction that thinks that Joe Biden is great, that still buys into the, you know, uh, sort of uh, aviator avatar of uh, Joe Biden, you know, as opposed to the one that most Americans now think, and including, you know, numerous polls show that most Americans think that he either did something unethical or potentially illegal involving his son and his activities. And then you also have, you know, in addition to that, the failure on the economy where people just, I mean, we have multiple statistics that show that for the average, you know, middle-class family, more than $700 more uh, is the cost of the goods that they would purchase in your average month uh, versus just two years ago. Meaning that that kind of inflationary pressure has reduced the value of everything that they earn. And that's one of the reasons that we see all the strikes that are happening, you know, across this country, uh, you know, even during a presidency that, uh, you know, has espoused his, uh, oh, pro-union Scranton roots. Uh, you know, which are kind of ridiculous when you think about it, because he you know, has never been anything but a politician that when you look at this scene, uh, you know, in front of you, Chris, what are the opportunities for Republicans and how are they going to screw them up? Just exactly to your point, I think this shows the, the neoliberals and the Obama types who are actually running the show in the White House, as opposed to maybe the team Joe Biden would have formed had he been able to form his own White House had he actually been there for his presidency and been able to form a team 15, 20 years ago, you know, the first, the first notice that there was something seriously wrong here was East Palestine, which it's an environmental disaster. The answer to which is to crack down on the big, bad railroad barons and do a little bit more regulation and try to reclaim some street credit with working class white people who are suffering in the middle of the country. And they just couldn't do it. The team didn't go. Biden didn't go. Buttigieg had to be dragged there kicking and screaming to talk about electric vehicles. They let J.D. Vance and some Democrats in the Senate really take the lead on this. It was amazing. And then you see the you see the auto workers out there protesting. And what are the folks on the left doing? Well, Joe Biden is not showing up. He's going to get stood up by Donald Trump, who's going to go out there and hold a rally with them. Uh, you don't see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out there. Uh, you see her buying a Tesla, a non-union company, and she, even she's getting a little pushback for that from the left. They seem, the, they they, seem so uh, incapable Chris, of grabbing the moment. Chris, is this a is this an example of a Hollywood writers' strike party trying to LARP as being a you know Midwestern union party? 
they, yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's a perfect example. Uh, they're, they're not only are they incapable of identifying these moments, but they seem it's not just the words. It's not just the policies. I mean, they, they used to be so good at at least projecting this image of caring to listen to a speech by Barack Obama, a, mid, a, a, mid, a state of the union speech. You sounded like you were listening to Ronald Reagan. The messaging was kind of conservative and lofty and American. Uh, that's what he was good at. Joe Biden was supposed to be the consoler in chief, the empathizer. I mean, one one ridiculous host compared to the flags and the lights around the Washington Monument on Inauguration Day as his arms hugging America in a warm embrace. And I'd he's forgotten been failing that. to do that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so ridiculous. Go ahead. <laughs> it's so creepy. But and, and that's his strength. And he's been failing. And I think. You know, there's like the, uh, the potential idea of like, oh, they, they just actually do hate working class white people or they, they don't really care about the unions. But I, I think some of it more than that probably ought to be chalked up to just gross incompetence from the team. They, they don't even think they don't even they think like elite neoliberals. They don't even think like just the kind of Donna Brazil, the old fashioned Democratic strategists mm-hmm. who knows a situ- knows an opportunity when they see it. And. You know, Joe Biden doesn't even need to actually do anything to help these unions other than show up. It's just a press. It's, 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 a, it's a press opportunity and they keep on missing them. But of course, I mean, you see the GOP is, is not going to take any wins out of this. J.D. Vance, for example, is trying to do some stuff uh, on the railroads. He's not getting a lot of support from the Republicans. And some of that may be principled on their part. Uh, it doesn't seem to be every time there's a step of the GOP toward taking these voters and actually being able to say, you know, we're going to, we're going to pick up these left leftover democratic constituencies, mm-hmm. some other Republican and all the leaders re- do their best to remind you that they are still the party well, of wall street and the chamber of commerce. Well, state. let me shift to a certain example of that, which is this dis- uh, current discussion, uh, you know, regarding government shutdown and CRs, et cetera, like, and let's not get into the legislative nitty, nitty gritty, but more focus on so this. complicated. Yeah, it, I mean, it, I have talked. Uh, my previous episode was with Chad Pergram, so we went over all the different sort of uh, nooks and crannies. But you know, just one aspect of this, which is there's a faction of the the right wing of the Republican conference which wanted to do something on the border attached to the CR, essentially saying border is our focus. And then, unfortunately, because they can't agree with each other, you know, there's another faction that was like, well, spending should be our focus. Uh, but when it comes to the border aspect of this, it seems to me that this is the golden opportunity for Republicans. And let's rewind the clock for a second. When Greg Abbott and to a lesser degree, Ron DeSantis, but mostly Greg Abbott started sending migrants uh, up north uh, and saying, you know, we're going to put these people right on your doorstep. You know, you are a sanctuary city. Okay, good luck with this. You know, this is a minuscule version of the problem that we face on a regular daily basis in El Paso and all, you know, in cities across the Southwest. You're going to have to deal with that now. And you had the most NIMBY reaction uh, that you could ever experience, not in my backyard, of you know, view hosts basically saying, you know, hey, uh, I, I'm never going to go to Scottsdale. It's fine if they're in Scottsdale. You know, I don't I don't know anybody in Scottsdale, but if they're here, I mean, that's a national crisis, you know, and 
the Republicans have basically put this in a position where suddenly the they're calling to account the left for all of these different policies that they have endorsed nobly as they go to, uh, you know, buy tickets to Hamilton as they recite the poem from the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. Now they're actually putting the migrants on their doorstep and they are reacting as you could expect. Totally hypocritical fashion, but you are not seeing from Washington, uh, you know, any kind of of, uh, money or policy things that put the Biden administration in a difficult spot. What do you think should be done on this score uh, from uh, the the you know, the the House Republicans who have the ability to do something. Uh, and how do you believe that this could be best leveraged by Republicans uh, to their advantage? It clearly, as I stated before, you know, uh, Joe Biden has a 23 percent approval when it comes to immigration and the border, according to that poll. How can they leverage that to their advantage? And then just just watching some of the footage that was on Fox today of of the feds cutting Texas laid razor wire and illegal immigrants is pouring through. I think we had a record number or a second, a, a, a second place record. I believe, it, I believe it is the second largest number. Yes. Um, uh, and it's, I mean, it, the number, but the numbers are also keep in mind, these are just the numbers that we're tracking, you know, <laughs> it's always sort of a people underestimate the fact that, you know, this is just the people we know. <laughs> That's, yeah, and I would love to see I would love to see a democratic civil war over this where these policies actually come back and hit them on their doorstep. Um and Abbott gets a lot of credit, I think rightly so, for busing illegal immigrants north north to sanctuary cities, but polling of the illegal immigrants done and and the numbers that are coming across when you compare how many he sent versus how many are actually up there. It's almost 90%. I think it's 87% just went to New York City on their own volition because because their mayor has gone out and previous mayors have said, we are a sanctuary place city. And they were trying to give them voting rights. And uh, just, a, just a short while ago, they promised people shelter. And, you know, this, is, this has happened before to Democrats. It reminds me of when Jimmy Carter was in the White House and you had the Muriel boat lift where, where Fidel Castro said, Oh, I heard America once uh, once all the immigrants of the world to come there. I read I read the poem on the Statue of Liberty. So I'm going to empty my prisons and my mental institutions onto the shores of the United States. It's uh, you have a vivid scene of it at the at the opening scenes of Scarface that mm-hmm. that movie. But Jimmy Carter took him up on that offer and said, "Sure, we'll take everyone," but didn't quite know what to do with them. And Cubans were free as soon as they stepped foot on this American soil. So we sent a bunch of them to Arkansas, where there was a young Democratic governor, Bill Clinton, facing re-election. The people of Arkansas didn't didn't cotton much to this. They didn't like it at all. And especially when there was a massive prison riot from the Cubans <laughs> at this base that they were being housed in. They and they the Cubans who were free to leave, it was kind of weird because they were allowed to be here, marched on the town, and the townsmen met them with guns and trucks, and there was this tense standoff, and Bill Clinton said, for the love of goodness, Jimmy Carter, send me no more of these refugees. I've got a tough re-election. And Carter did anyways. Had nearly sunk his re-election campaign. And that would have been the the end of the rising career of Bill Clinton. And that's why they're, they're still not friends to this day. They don't stand next to each other in photos. A very icy relationship that started there. And Joe Biden, it seems like, is doing the same thing to Eric Adams here. Mm-hmm. Although, if he could control it, he would. Remember last week when he when he 
tease the policy of as opposed to remain in Mexico or do remain in Texas and remove the American border from the southern border of Texas to the northern border of Texas and try to do that. They're trying to do anything they can. But at the same time, the true believers in his administration are putting forward these ideas of, well, why don't we just fly Haitians and Venezuelans into the country and not even track them? Uh, come up with a program where they can just set up an appointment and don't have to come through the border as long as they can afford their ticket. Why don't we give out some more amnesty and some more jog programs? And that'll solve it. I don't, I don't think that's going to make it much easier for Eric Adams. And that, that kind of pushback within the Democratic Party will probably be more effective than more than Republicans are. But I loved the idea that Chip Roy had of we're going to fight on the border. Unfortunately, a lot of the a lot of the guys who wanted to join with him, their whole idea for the strategy was just to hurt Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> it wasn't a focused enough yep. constituency to make that a thing. Yeah. I have to ask you a question about this, uh, this holdout group that's currently, you know, uh, the focus of everything that's leading us up to the shutdown. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of coherence to their objections to things. Uh, it's five to 10 members um, that really have, you know, put the skids to, you know, a lot of the different appropriations uh, bills and the ability to even move anything really. Um, and I'm just curious as to your feeling about how that's going to play out because it, it really does seem to me like what they would like to have happen is for uh, uh, them to force McCarthy and the leadership team uh, to uh, work with Democrats on the House side in order to actually keep the government open, which Democrats will gladly do because they would like to keep the chaos contained to the Republican side, but also keep the Repu- keep everything running so that they don't get the backlash to that. Uh, and uh, the flip side being that, you know, most of them seem to be doing this from a lot of personal ambition sort of focused things. You know, we saw Matt Gates, for instance, teasing the fact that he's going to run for governor um, uh, since Ron DeSantis is obviously term limited uh, and Byron Donalds as well is planning to you know do that. Uh, according to a lot of different reports, you know, what do you think uh, the play out of this really is, especially given the very slim margin that Republicans have in the House? You know, I really enjoyed the Matt Gates versus Chip Roy debate that Hannity hosted on his radio program, kind of just a back and forth of the policy matters of this. But I do admit that I'm more prone to listening when I think somebody who really understands tactics to a certain, at least at least parliamentary tactics. Chip Roy has an objection because Matt Gates is a founding member member of the I hate Kevin McCarthy caucus. <laughs> I, I think it seems to be, like you said, some personal ambitions there. But he also just really enjoys going at McCarthy and making his life difficult. Can, now, can I make actually? Can I interrupt you for a second? Is is there a reason why Matt Gates has these fights? Uh, that seemed to me to benefit him in a meta sense, meaning that he fights with leadership, McCarthy, et cetera. He fights with uh, moderates, you know, weaklings on the issue that he describes. He fights with people who just dislike him, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, people who, uh, you know, are mostly in the kind of, of, of squish sort of centers of things, uh, a fight with Chip Roy is a pretty rare thing, and I did listen to that audio as well. Um, he doesn't really seem to fight a lot with conservatives, but when you talk to conservatives on Capitol Hill, 
they don't think of Matt Gates as a conservative. I mean, they don't sort of include him in their number. I think that's for a variety of reasons, one of which is that he's very soft on the abortion issue. But like it's it's something that just sort of is is odd to me that there are no conservatives that stand up there and basically say, hey, you know, we have, a, you know, a, 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 a DOD bill that does a ton of things that I like and I don't like what you're doing. And you describing us, you know, sort of normal fiscal conservatives as being a bunch of squishes is a problem to me. Why doesn't Matt Gates get into those fights? Why are they always fights that seem to benefit him, given the uh, the opposition? I think you just answered that question. Yeah, Gates has never really, at least from any circles that I've run in and, and been involved with, been included, and nor, nor really has a staff because he's kind of um, he's a bomb thrower, and that's his main thing. It's if you need to have a conversation about how to. I mean, and sometimes it's really fun to mess with leadership. I, I totally get that. And sometimes it's oh fun yeah, to no, it's there's nothing better than like screwing with the class president. Come on, <laughs> yeah, it's, it can be a blast. And but but I don't know if there's much to where he goes, uh, why he does that beyond some of the publicity and the ability to get his talking points out there and the ability to really be a backbencher who somebody who would be a backbencher is actually makes a lot of noise and has got a national profile and could potentially run for higher office and wants to uh, be close with Donald Trump and wants to, to hurt their enemies. I think that's, that's kind of the, the driving force right now behind, behind everything he's doing. And, and because of that, he's not going to be as included in some of the, strategize sessions i mean we saw a little bit of a difference there during the actual fight for the speakership because you needed folks to actually work together on that but uh in general he's not and but you also mentioned the moderates there and i think a lot is going to come down to some of these uh more liberal republicans and moderates are they going to suddenly have some courage and generally speaking uh in politics they they have it and it, they could flip this whole thing right now by joining with Democrats. Uh, they could even join with Democrats to reelect Kevin McCarthy if he if he gets challenged for speakership. But that's the kind of bridge burning activity that they generally don't like to do. Mm-hmm. And I I, I am just, I, I don't think that they're going to to push this spending fight to that. But every time I've talked to folks who are involved with this over the last two weeks, they the, the one constant is that anyone who is predicting to you what's going to happen tonight or tomorrow uh, doesn't actually know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's at best an educated guess and, and educated guesses when it comes to member performance are notoriously fickle. Uh, last question for you, Chris, uh, when you look at the current political landscape, Republican and Democrat, which side going into this next year's presidential election would you rather be depends i suppose on which office but i'm still i think the democrats are still hold the advantage in a presidential election they're doing everything they really can to undermine that but we're gonna it's it's so tiresome to, to notice it but we're going to see a rematch right now between joe biden and donald trump it's it's the democrats don't want biden to be their candidate republicans do want trump to be their candidate but i think a a lot of people who i speak to from all over the country and all walks of life who voted for him the first time just kind of wish there was something 
new here. All the opinions are entrenched. They're not going to hold, they're probably not going to hold any actual presidential debates. It's kind of no. shocking the idea that there could be an almost boring race involving Donald Trump. I'm sure he'll do something to change that. But despite the hand wringing, I, I still think that the Democrats have the advantage on that. Now, I would not want to be a Democrat running for Senate or House in a more vulnerable district at this time uh, yes. or state. That'd be tougher. It's a it's going to be a very weird election. You could definitely see the reelection of Joe Biden and a Republican Senate. Uh, and, you know, uh, the the House, I think, is very much, a, you know, a coin flip just in terms of, of what we what, what we are seeing there. Uh, but if you end up with a Hakeem Jeffries speakership, Nancy Pelosi pulling the puppet strings, uh, that would be a very, very weird Washington. Uh, but it's something that is very conceivable. Chris, I think we're going to have to go back to South Carolina and Iowa and New Hampshire, Ben. I think that we are going to have to go back to South Carolina in particular because, uh, you know, it is uh, I hope that they make restaurant wink uh, correspond with the <laughs> with the primary down there, uh, because that would be nice. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to join me today. Just a quick note about our programming going forward. I am going to endeavor to uh, shift a little bit the model and format. I've enjoyed doing an interview-focused podcast uh, for uh, this period of time and appreciate all of you who have subscribed and, and listened and reacted to those interviews. Interviews are something that I really appreciate, and I think that, you know, I have approached it with uh, seriousness and trying to, you know, read all the books beforehand. Uh, really figure out questions to ask of the people involved. But one of the things that happens in the podcast world, as you may have noticed, is that there are a lot of guests who sort of do the interview circuit. They come around and, and you have the same guest appear on multiple podcasts the same week because they have a book to promote or an event or something like that. I would like to shift this to a little bit of a different format. And so in the next week, I wanted to promise you that we're going to be doing things a little bit differently around here. Namely, I'm going to be bringing you a, a monologue, something that is written, that I write myself, that I prepare myself, and that I deliver to you, uh, analyzing uh, some major news and responding to some of the major news events that we have going around us. Because I think that it's more clarifying, potentially, to have you know, an opinion offered directly from the host. I hope that you will appreciate this new format and, uh, and feel free to email me and respond to it. Uh, you can email me at ben at spectator.com. And one of the things that I think is going to be really important about it uh, is the engagement of those online. I think people have an appetite for the kind of uh, language and approach to these different issues that go through them and offer a different perspective than what you might hear from the corporate press. And that's something that I hope to offer. So until next week, when we have a chance to come back together and listen and learn and potentially, you know, have a little bit of humor along the way, I hope that you will continue to listen, continue to subscribe, continue to like, recommend, share with your friends. Until next week, when we dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.
pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.